Father, we thank you for Spencer and his willingness to bring your word to bear upon the hearts of your people. And Lord, we, we, anticipate, we have great anticipation of our hearts, uh, Lord, that your word will do its work in, our, in ours. And so, Father, we pray you bless Spencer, give him um, freedom to speak boldly, and uh, let his words be yours. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. Sunday school? Oh, yeah, Sunday school. Well, yes, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you again. Uh, And if you would turn in your Bible to John chapter 1, if you haven't done that already. Um, Last time we were at the end of the Gospel of John, and this time at the beginning, and and what is my favorite uh, Christmas passage. And, you know, at at Christmas, obviously, we are celebrating the birthday of Jesus. But uh, as with any birthday, uh, we don't really... The birthday isn't really about celebrating the person's birth as it is celebrating their life, right? The reason we celebrate their birth is because of everything that came after their birth. So as much as we think about the nativity at Christmas of of being born there in Bethlehem, really the great wonder of Christmas, why it's so uh, amazing, is that we get to think about the life of Jesus. That such a man existed, that the God-man even existed. That's what we rejoice in, and... Therefore, I think it's fitting that we look here at what is the prologue to a biography of Jesus. You know, the Gospels are a lot more than a biography, but very simply, it's a biography of Jesus. And verses 1 to 18, it's a prologue to what John is going to say. And like a prologue to any biography, you know, it, it, he has a purpose there. You know, he, he wants to kind of give a defense. You're about to read a whole book about one guy, and, and particularly, this is now the fourth book about this carpenter turned itinerant preacher from Galilee. Why is it worth your time? Why should you read this? And then likewise, he wants to set your expectation. As you read the story of this man, what should you be looking for in this man's life? And so keep that in mind then as as I now read John 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is amazing. John is about to give the biography again of a carpenter-turned-itinerant preacher from this far-off outpost in the Roman Empire. 
and you ask, why should I read this biography? And he says, because in this man's life is the meaning of life. The meaning of the universe is bound in this man. Every great question you've ever had, those questions that keep you up at night, that if left unanswered make you wonder why you live at all, everything is found in this man's life. It's an audacious claim, but it's the claim that John makes. The meaning of life is going to be told in a biography. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at these four most basic questions that all of us answer about life. And we're going to look and see how John shows that all of these are answered in the life of Christ. And the first is is maybe that, that most basic and pestering of questions. What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why is anything here? It's something that, that's obvious to us. All of us ask us. All of us ask it. Nobody ever had to tell us that, hey, maybe you're here for a purpose. We just look around at creation and, and we see that there's, there's something guiding them. There's structure. There's systems. And then in our hearts, we feel that too. We feel like there, there has to be some reason. Well, we're not content with just living a, a chaotic, meaningless life. We all feel like there must be some why behind our existence, behind the existence of everything. But the answer evades us. And what John says here in in simple terms is that the meaning of life, it's found in this word here in your Bible, which is word. And this morning we're going to talk about the, the Greek word that's behind that English word, word. And it's a word that you've probably heard of before. And if not, you'll be familiar with it today the word logos l-o-g-o-s logos and um and it's it means word that's true Uh, but when it's in a certain context it takes on a whole new meaning than just a thing that a person says it takes on all these philosophical and theological connotations Uh, similarly imagine if someone asks you to describe to them american politics this person didn't know anything about the political scene in America, and they said, just explain to me what it's like. And so you told them, okay, well, it's mostly a conflict between two groups. You have the Republicans and the Democrats. And they say, oh, okay, so one group supports a republic style of government, and the other person supports a democracy. And you go, oh, no, no, it's not it. No, see, the the Republicans, they're conservative. And the Democrats, they're liberal. And the person goes, oh, okay, so one group like wants to you know, preserve the planet, and then the other group really cares about personal freedom? And you go, oh, no, no, that's not it. No, see, the, the conservatives, they're on the right, and the liberals, they're on the left. And they go, oh, it's an, an East Coast, West Coast thing? Go, no, no, no. Uh, we're using all these words that, in a different context, mean something very simple and basic. But when put in a political context, it takes on this whole new meaning that you have to be very ingrained in American society to understand. You know, me saying the the governor is on the left is completely different than saying the bathroom is on the left. It's just the different context gives it all of this meaning. And so, you know, imagine if if I wanted to to talk about the left in America today. Um, If, by saying that, you guys would have all this stuff already in your mind. You would have in your mind, uh, you know, democratic presidents and the history of the Democratic Party. You know, you have an idea of socialism and BLM. All of this would inform what you think of as the left. And I wouldn't have to explain any of that to you because you know what it is being an American citizen. So uh, the difficulty then here is when John says the word logos, it comes in this theological context. It comes with all these connotations to the audience. 
And we, not being that original audience, we need to try and get back there. So what we're gonna, I'm going to do briefly is I'm going to give you that cultural background to what the Logos meant. And then from understanding that, then we will look and see what exactly John says about the Logos, which is very similar. So uh, the first thing of the Logos is, well, and because the, the people who are the audience of John's Gospel, they're kind of in between two worlds. They are Jews, uh, but they're also living in a, a Greek culture. And so they have, they have both a, a Greek culture and a Jewish culture. And uh, Logos, the, the philosophical concept of Logos, it comes from Greek philosophy. Uh, in Stoicism and in Plato, the Logos was the, the structure, the, the logic behind everything. Uh, in, in Greek philosophy, it was, if you take the Logos out of the world, it's just a big blob of matter. The Logos is what gives it a meaning, a purpose, a structure, you know. Without the Logos, you just have a bunch of Legos on the ground. The Logos then is then the, the instruction manual that tells you how to put it together into some kind of structure. That's what the Logos is. It, it pervades everything. It makes you who you are. It makes the sun rise. It gives shape to everything. And then as you're thinking about that, okay, the Logos is this force that shapes everything. Uh, then for some people, Plato especially, they begin they begin to identify that with the mind of God. Okay, that makes sense. It's God's wisdoms, God's wisdom, God's thoughts that shape the world. And so then that's what it would have meant to the, the, in the Greek context. The logos is the mind of God, the force, logic, reason behind everything. And what happened some point before John uh, is some Jewish person heard this Greek concept of the logos and they thought, hey, that sounds a lot like what the Old Testament actually says about God's word and God's thoughts. Um, so, for example, uh, where John here is directly alluding to is, is John 1. How does God create the world? God has this, this formless mass. And then what does he do? He speaks. And it's by his words that the world comes to be. It gives structure uh, to everything, to everything we know. And then, uh, and then you come to uh, the prophets. And in the prophets, there's a familiar refrain. Uh, that's the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. The word of the Lord, or hear the word of the Lord. And so it comes then in a book like, like, Proverbs, uh, like uh, Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord, it becomes like a character in and of itself. God is acting in the, word, in the world through his word. And then you have uh, Proverbs 8. If you turn right there, Back to there, we, we can see the, the wisdom of God. So you've got God speaking in creation with his words. You've got the word of the Lord bringing judgment and hope of salvation in the prophets. And then look here at, at Proverbs chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 22. Uh, you'll see the, the connections between John 1. They're very apparent. It's just uh, Solomon is using the word wisdom and not logos. So verse 22, it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, 
like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. So then you've got the Jews. They, they hear about Genesis 1. They hear about the word of the Lord in Jeremiah. They hear about God's wisdom in Proverbs 8. And eventually some person then heard this Greek concept of the Logos and said, it's basically the same thing. Uh, that word, that Greek word Logos, that really captures what the Old Testament was saying about God's thoughts and God's word. And so it came to be identified then as the Logos. The Logos is the mind of God. It is the the structure and wisdom by which God shapes all things. Okay, now we're caught up. Now we're people who know the American political situation. And now we can know exactly what John is going to say about the Logos. And the first thing there, right in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the word. And, and he's not saying merely temporally, at the beginning of time the word was there. No, it, he's saying it as if the word is, is foundational. He is the beginning. He is the starting point. The origin of all things is the logos. He is the, the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause. Everything goes back to the logos. And then he goes further than that. He says, and the word was with God. And then confusingly, he said, the word was God. So the Logos, it's the beginning of all things. And then the Logos, well, I thought, I thought God was the beginning of all things. Well, yes, the Logos was with God. And then even more than that, the Logos was God. And now this is confusing. Uh, usually in speech, you can't be a person and be with a person at the same time, right? I am Spencer. I can't be with Spencer. It's one or the other. I can, I can be with Steve, but if I'm going to be with Steve, I can't be Steve. It's one or the other. So it, it's this... Tension here then. How is the Logos at one time with God, and yet he also is God? And this is a wonderful demonstration of the doctrine of the Trinity. That the Father is God, just as the Son is God. And so they are completely the same in the essence, yet their their distinction is that they are able to relate to each other. They are different persons, such that the Son can be with the Father, yet at the same time they share the exact same substance as God. And that's what John is saying here in verse 1 about the Logos. Then he, he just reiterates it. He goes on and on. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. I want to make it clear, the Logos is the foundation of all things. Verse 3, he cast out any doubt. He says, all things were made through him. Well, was there anything made without the Logos? Nope. Without him was not anything made that was made. To make this emphatic point, everything comes back to the Logos. He is the source of all things. And then continuing that Genesis 1 imagery, he says in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You remember in Genesis 1, God gives life to the earth. He creates plants and animals. And then from the dust, he breathes life into it and creates man. John's saying, yeah, the Logos was the words of God. He's also the life that God gave to the world. And then more than that, it says, the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In Genesis 1, the Logos was the words God spoke. It was the life he gave to the world, and it was the light that he shone in the darkness. When he said, let there be light, what came forth was the Logos. John's point is, the Logos is everything. He's he's the words in Genesis. He's the life in Genesis. He's the light in Genesis. He's even God from Genesis. Everything comes back to him. He really can't use any higher terms to express the value and worth of the Logos. 
And so then, to our first question, what is the meaning of life? Well, you can answer it by saying the meaning of life is found in the Logos. He is the mind, the wisdom behind all things. He is the meaning behind all things. To know the Logos is to know the meaning of life. Okay, that's, that's well enough. Our, our only problem is, okay, well then, who's the Logos? What's the Logos? Can I know the Logos? Uh, you know, as I said, the Greek philosophers, they knew about the Logos. The only problem was that they couldn't figure out with certainty who he was. You know, 3,000 years now, philosophy and science has been trying to understand the Logos, the meaning, the structure behind life. And the one thing that they've proved in 3,000 years is that they're never going to find out what it is. Failure after failure. Man is completely unable to ascend and go up and find out what the Logos is. And so therefore it can seem like we are forever stuck in ignorance. That yes, the Logos is out there, the structure, the meaning behind all things, but it's impenetrable. We can't know it. And so that's that second question that I have there. How can I know anything? There's all kinds of things that we, that we take for granted. We take for granted even that, that our brains work, that our reason is trustworthy. But who told us? How, how can I even have confidence that when I say words to you, they are meaningful enough to you that we can share thoughts? Maybe I'm stuck forever in my own ignorance and no one can communicate with me. How can I know anything? How could I ever know the Logos? And then we find the amazing answer in verse 14. And as you go there, if you could flip your notes over, I want to make a quick note on the structure that John has here in the prologue. It's, it's very complex. It's something called a chiasm. A chiasm is actually a common uh, structure in the Bible. And as you can see, it's kind of this V thing uh, where one part uh, mirrors the other part. So the, the first section mirrors the last section. The second uh, section mirrors the second to last section. And then this V-shape happens such that the center is the emphasis. It's the, the most important part. And so it's because of this uh, interesting structure that I'm actually going to jump from verse 5 now down to verse 14. Uh, we're going to come back later to verses 6 and 13. But to continue this uh, thought of the Logos most directly, I think we should just jump down to 14. And so here, we're, we're at the Logos. And what John says is something that is, uh, frankly, to the Greek philosophers, it would have been ridiculous. Uh, it's very interesting. When you uh, read scholars uh, talking about John 1 to 18, uh, they are asking, uh, where did John get this idea of the Logos? And they throw out, oh, maybe it's from Plato, maybe it's from Stoics. But a number of them say, well, it can't be from Plato and it can't be from the Stoics because they would never say that the Logos could become a man. They say, he is so transcendent, that would be ridiculous for them to say that he's man. So John must be getting his material from somewhere else. And they're missing the point, right? Yes, this is, this is John's whole point. He is saying the most outrageous thing, that the Logos, the source of all things, the beginning, became a man. He took on flesh. And as you... Read this rest of this biography. You are going to find the meaning of, the, of meaning of life, the meaning of the universe in this man's life. And you say, okay, this biography, if you read it, you're going to understand the meaning of the universe. You'd say, oh, okay, who was this man? Was he a great king? No, he wasn't a king. 
Oh, was he maybe a, a great author? Did he write some great works? No, nope, he didn't write anything. Oh, he was a great leader or something? Oh, no, most people didn't like him. He had a few hundred followers, and uh, no, people really hated him so that they killed him when he was 33 years old. Did he do anything of worldly significance in his life? No, not really. But that man is the meaning of the universe. He is God incarnate. It's amazing. It really is that this man who really did nothing in his life of significance to the world is the most important man in history. He's the most famous person in the world. And the only reason that is is because of the legacy that he left on the people that were with him. Because when they saw him, they saw the glory of God. They realized that this man is distinct from everyone else who has ever existed. And, and the claim here that Jesus is God, is the Logos, is something that's so outrageous that no one else even makes that claim. I mean, I don't know, maybe there's some weirdo out at prison who thinks he's the only God. But, but any person who's ever had any kind of following, any sort of credibility, has never claimed to be the only God. Plenty of people have claimed to be sons of God or, or demigods, but it's just one of many gods, not the source of all things, just a person with special powers. It, so much so that, that not even a person has been mistaken to be claiming that they're the only God. No, no one clarified with Muhammad, wait, so are you saying you're Allah? No, it didn't even come close to that. No one clarifies with Moses, wait, did, are you Yahweh? No. Jesus, even if Jesus didn't claim he was God, he'd be the only person in history who was even mistaken to have been the only God. But he did claim to be God. And he was And he is, therefore, the most amazing, remarkable person in history. And he is the most uh, amazing and remarkable thing you can even think of. How can we know the Logos? How can we know anything? Because he descended to us as a man, as that most intelligible of creatures, another person. And because of that, we see his glory. Uh, Where verses 1 to 5 John was, was alluding to Genesis chapter 1. Now in verses 14 to 18, he alludes to Exodus, specifically Exodus 33. And it starts when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there is tabernacle. John's saying, just as God came down at Sinai and lived in the tabernacle and they saw his glory go into it. So now God lives with us, but in a man, not a tabernacle. And we see his glory, just as God said to Moses, nobody can see me and live. But Moses nevertheless said, God, please show me your glory. And Moses, one person, he saw a little glimpse of God's glory. Now we see it completely in Christ. And he is full of grace and truth. Those, those words, grace and truth, that's likewise going back to Exodus, where God says, yes, it says to Moses, you can see my backside. And when he does that, he introduces himself. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. John is translating those two words which summarize God's character as grace and truth. In Jesus, we see God's character. And now I'm going to come back to verse 15 when I talk about John the Baptist later. But jump now to to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Uh, A better way to actually translate that last phrase is grace replacing grace. Uh, what, what John is saying, it's interesting. He says that from the fullness of who Jesus is, his character as the Logos, as the only God, we receive a grace which is replacing another grace. 
And that's interesting. What, what grace replaces another grace? Well, he explains it in verse 17. He said, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Imagine the people there at Sinai. Storm clouds above the mountain. And God tells the people, You touched Mount Sinai and you're dead. And he says, You can send one person up, Moses. And so Moses goes up. And uh, God says, I want to destroy Israel, or I, want to, I don't want anything to do with them. Moses argues with God, and God says, yes, I, I will be with them. But then what's God's grace? And indeed, it is a grace. Israel didn't deserve to have a relationship with God. But God made a way that they could have a relationship with him. He sent Moses down with, with rules, with a law. And this law was good. It expressed who God was. And it made a way that Israel could have some kind of fellowship with God. They were able to go into the temple. God was able to reside with them in the temple. And once a year, a person could go into the Holy of Holies. That was a grace. They didn't deserve that. But this is the amazing thing. Now we're standing at Sinai and thunderclouds are above. And instead of God sending down Moses with a law, he comes down himself as a man. And instead of him now being some tabernacle that I have to go through all these rituals to even get somewhat close to, now he's just a man, as one of us. I can talk to him. I can touch him. He eats. He drinks. And yet it's God dwelling with us. And it's not like the temple where he has some kind of glow or even that he has some beautiful appearance. No, he reveals his glory as the only son of God in his words and actions. And it's through that that God dwells with us, that we have a relationship with him. And, and Jesus, the eternal son of God, he will always be a man. There will never again be a distance between God and man because one of us is God. And he will forever intercede for us. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Again, that's going back to when God says to Moses, nobody can see me and live. Moses gets a little glimpse. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him know. Now we see it. We see God way more than Moses ever did. In the glory of, yes, that, I, that carpenter turned itinerant preacher from Galilee. He is the incarnate God, the incarnate Logos, the meaning of the universe. Can you know why you exist? Can you know why anything else exists? Yes, you can. It's about that one person. And, and you might not be able to, to articulate every philosophical answer to all life's major questions, but you can know that all of them are found in that man, Jesus Christ. And you don't need to know all the other specificities of life as long as you know it all comes back to him, the Lord of the universe. And with that, we now go back to verses uh, 6 to 8. And, uh, and I'll admit... This sermon would have been much easier to preach if John didn't put verses 6 to 8 and 15 in there. I don't know if you ever, I've read this before at Christmas and I just skip over it. It's like, I'm trying to read this beautiful thing about the Logos becoming a man. Why are you bothering us with John the Baptist? You know, you're going to talk about him in a second. I get he's a good guy. But just, you know, keep with this beautiful thought of the Logos. And if you ever do that, this represents a good Bible study tip. If ever you come across a place in the Bible that you think that, this is dumb, why would he put this in here? Uh, if I was writing this, it would have been much clearer to just leave it out. Just talk about the Logos, talk about John the Baptist later. 
If you ever have a thought like that, it's great. Mark it down and note it. Because most things in life, uh, we don't even know what we don't know. And so it's great when we can find out what it is that we don't know, because then we can go and find out what it is. So whenever you think, oh, this is dumb, this is silly, why would he put this in there? You go, hey, I just figured out something I don't know. Because the biblical author was much smarter than me. He obviously had a purpose, and most of all, he's inspired by God. So when, when I say that, oh, this is silly, why would he do this? What I'm really saying is, I'm silly, I'm foolish, I'm not able to figure out why John would do this. He's being too subtle and profound for me. I need to understand it. And if I do, I'll learn something new, because obviously I don't know it yet. Otherwise, I wouldn't have thought it was dumb in the first place. <laughs> so here we are then. John is interrupting uh, this beautiful hymn to the Logos, the identity of Jesus Christ, by talking about this guy, John the Baptist. And so he says in verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then we'll skip to verse 15, because that's where it also talks about John the Baptist. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. What's the word that stands out there? Anyone see that? It's a word that's repeated many times. Witness, yeah. Why is John the Baptist included here? Because he's going to answer that third question. What religion is true? All right, this is some amazing claims you're making about Jesus. That's all well and good. It's very beautiful. Um, But how do we even know it's true? A lot of other people claim completely different things about God and what the Logos is. How do we know that Jesus' claims are true? You know, sure, John, you've said you've seen the glory of God in this person, Jesus, but I haven't. I, I don't know Jesus. I wasn't his disciple. I didn't see him and touch him as you did. How am I supposed to know that, that you're correct in saying that this is the only God? And the way that John's going to do that throughout his gospel is through witnesses. No, we haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, but we can rely on the witness, the testimony of those who did see him. And that is what John is saying. That's why he brings up John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is the prototype of these witnesses. There's going to be many witnesses throughout the gospel, and he's he's introducing the idea right now. And that we would believe through witnesses is a a perfectly normal thing to us. For example, how many of you have been to Antarctica? How many of you believe Antarctica exists? Everybody. And we don't believe because we saw it with our own eyes or felt the cold air, but we believe it when other people say they've been there. The vast majority probably of things that we know and hold confidently are things that we've received on authority because of the witness of somebody else. And John is saying, we'll do the exact same thing with this incarnate God. You will know that he is who he says he was because of the witness of others. And this might seem a a very basic idea, but it's actually very different from other religions in the world, right? You know, how do we know that Muhammad had a message from God? He just received a message in a cave. Can anybody else testify that he received the message in the cave? No. All you have to do is, is he says, I, I got a message. You believe him or you don't. Same thing with Joseph Smith. No one else can confirm that he had this gold tablet and this special stuff. He was out by himself. You believe him or you don't. The same with, uh, with Siddhartha, the, the Buddhist guy. You know, he's just out in a tree. He has a vision. No one can confirm that. That's not how Christianity is, though. It's not just one guy shows up and says, yeah, I'm, I'm the son of God. 
you believe me or you don't. No, no, God actually, it says in verse 6, that he sends another person, another really amazing man, a prophet, John the Baptist, who other people will respect, so that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it's not just one weird dude saying that, but there's a bunch of other people that can witness and say, yes, he is. He is who he says he is. Actually, in extra-biblical history, it's very interesting, John the Baptist has a better reputation uh, than Jesus. He was pretty much universally known as a, a wonderful prophet. Sure, he said some very uh, confrontational things, but he was right, and he had some courage to do that. God purposely sends this other person, John the Baptist, so that we won't just have to take Jesus' word for it, that multiple witnesses will testify to who Jesus is. And that's what John is going to do all throughout the gospel. We, we saw that uh, last time with, with Thomas. We believe his witness, the witness of somebody who is uh, an unbeliever but turned believer, and we'll see the witness of the Samaritan woman, of the man who was born blind, of all the people who see the miracles of Jesus. Even God himself testifies to who Jesus is. We know that he, he is this most wonderful of ideas, the incarnate Logos, because we have real witnesses to who he is. And it really is an encouragement to see the strength of Christian testimony compared to that of other religions. There's nobody else saying Muhammad did these miracles until hundreds of years later from people who never knew him. But real people who knew Jesus intimately said, yeah, he raised somebody from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. And so how do we know what religion is true? Because of these witnesses of whom John the Baptist is the prototype. With that, then we move to, as you saw with that chiasm, the center of John's prologue. His main point And he he starts with this very sad irony. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Here he is, the creator of the universe, the creator of, of the Jews, their God. And yet when he comes to him, they don't recognize him. And as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 2, that, that's the greatest testimony to their foolishness. That they claim they knew God. No, they don't know God. He showed up right in front of their face and they killed him. That's, that's our foolishness. The person who made us, who made the world, we are so ignorant that when he stands right in front of our face, we think he's just a nutcase. That's a sad irony. Okay, so his own people... The people that he had loved throughout the Old Testament, they didn't receive him. We come to this fourth fourth question, could God love me? You know, it's all well and good that you've said this, that the Logos became a man, but how do I know he cares about me? How do I know I have a good relationship with him? You shouldn't assume that. None of us have lived good lives. We all know how evil we are. This could actually be very frightening news that God has come to earth as a man. For I've in many ways made myself an enemy of God. So can he love me? This is John's main point. This is his point throughout the gospel. He writes it for this purpose, that people would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so he says in verse 11, or verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yes, he does love you. You can, through him, you can become a child of God. 
It, it really is the most amazing thought, just that God would become a man. But then to think that he was despised and forsaken, rejected, that he bore our sins on the cross. The, the eternal God, the Logos, dying for me. And he did that so that we could become the children of God. And I, I think John's definitely getting at the, the, you know, the parallelism here. The Son of God was born a child of man, that the children of men might be born sons of God. You know, it's that great verse from Hark the Herald Angel Sings, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's the wonderful thing. We have become God's children through the Son of God becoming a child of man. And John wants to make it clear, though, that people became God's children. It was, it was not in the people that they were born. That John's going to expand on this more in chapter 3, where uh, in the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, you must be born again. One of the main points that Jesus has there is that because you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, that means you can't do anything to enter the kingdom of God. You know, what, what role did you play in existing and being born? Nothing. Just one day you were. You didn't even realize that you were. It wasn't until years later that you realized you were born at some point. You had nothing to do with it. And that's what John is saying about these people who become God's children. It wasn't because they were the best. It wasn't because they were the smartest and had figured out who the Logos was. No, but by the grace of God, he made new creations. He made his children. And John is emphatic about this in, in verse 13. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Nobody else, nothing else deserves credit for, being, for you being saved, but God alone. He is the reason that, that you are a believer, that you know the Logos. Without him, we are completely lost. We have, we have no reason to boast before each other or before God that we are God's children, that we're born again. No. I can just as much boast that I'm born again that I can boast that I exist. I just do. It was because of God's grace. And with this, you know, we've seen the Logos, the incarnate Logos, as the preeminent revelation of God to us. You know, that's what Hebrews 1 says. God, in the former times, revealed himself in, in many times, in many ways, but in these present days, he's revealed himself to us by his Son. And because of that, it's certainly true that Jesus is the, the premier revelation of God. And some people wrongly therefore conclude, we need to care a little bit less about the Bible. You know, Christianity is not about the Bible, it's about Christ. Therefore, don't pay so much attention to the individual commands. It's about a person, not a book. It's not about rules. And, and so doing that, they really take the exact opposite conclusion you should take. Instead of it being that Jesus is the incarnate word of God. Therefore, the, the written word of God can be ignored. No that's, no, that's so dumb. No, it should be. Because we love so much the incarnate word of God, we want to love the word of God in all its forms, in its written form as well. Everything that you love about Jesus is the same thing that's in the Bible. So, therefore, it's impossible to love Jesus and to not love the Bible. It's, it's impossible to love the incarnate word of God and ignore